Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. Well, hello. I am talking today with Whitney Cuisenberry. Hello, Whitney. How are you doing today? Hi, Joe. I'm great. It's been a long time since we talked, but it's great, great, great to be speaking to you again. Well, I'm talking from my home office on Vashon Island near Seattle, Washington. Where are you talking to us from? I'm about as far away as we could be. I'm talking from my home and the headquarters of Center for Civic Design in um, Dorchester County, Maryland, which is almost the Atlantic Ocean. Well, uh, it's, it's uh, great to uh, be able to have this chat with you. Um, now, we've known each other for a long time and uh, kind of in a lot of different phases of work in that time. And so it, it's kind of fun to, uh, for me to uh, kind of maybe be able to revisit some of that with you uh, in this conversation as we get to uh, your work with accessibility. But you know, why don't you just start by uh, uh, just uh, letting everybody know what uh, things you're involved with right now? Oh, I'm in phase 150 of my life. Um, I now run the uh, Center for Civic Design. Um, we think of democracy as a design problem and have been working with election offices and advocates now for almost eight years, um, just trying to make it easier for people to vote, which means access in the broadest sense, accessibility in the narrow sense, and uh, supporting the implementation of policies like I guess like so many people who work in, in design, it's, it's it's one thing to have a great idea, but it's another thing to execute that idea well. Well, I, I, I think we'll come around and, and dig into that a little bit more detail because uh, I think that part is, is really fascinating. Um, but also, um, it before we go any further, I want to just mention your book, uh, A Web for Everyone, Designing Accessible User Experiences. Uh, Personally, it's one of my my uh, most dog-eared books. I have post-it notes all over it. Uh, it's not only uh, has great information, great stories, but as uh, somebody who started out as a, a person involved in uh, in a lot, doing a lot of writing, it's also a really cool book. So, uh, well, thanks. We worked really hard on it. It was uh, it was a it was a. a, a it's always hard to write a book. You think you have a whole book in you or in the person you're writing with, you think that you have a whole book in you. You turn out you've got about half a book and then you've got to fight your way through the rest of it. It's still still really relevant. It's been out for like six years or so, something like that. Um, but, you know, how did you come around to uh, deciding to do that book? Because I know how much effort goes into those things. And certainly with this one, uh, you can you can tell a lot of effort went into it. Oh, it's sort of an accident. It's it, like so many things in my life, it was one of those serendipitous accidents. Um, I'd already written a book on storytelling for Lou Rosenfeld, for Rosenfeld Media. And we were chatting as we did from time to time. And he said, you know, would you take a look at this proposal for an accessibility book? And it was, it was sort of another walk through 508. And very very procedural and, and and you know requirements oriented and i just thought you know rosenfeld's sort of imprint is about practical 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 guidance for people and user experience and uh 
nobody really loves designing to a lot of requirements, but they what we do love designing to understanding people. And so it was late at night. I read it and I started typing. I bashed out this email. You know, all Lou, this is not, 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 there are not a people in it. This really isn't a, a, a great book for Rosenfeld. And what a book for Rosenfeld would look like would be this. And I hit send. I just realized what I'd done. Uh, and he'd been approached by Sarah Horton about a book. And he thought she had a lot of credibility in the field from the Yale Manual Style, which is one of the first really great style manuals uh, for accessibility. And I could tell a story and knew I could get a book, get a book out of me eventually. And so we put that together. She brought some principles, the idea of, of the principles, and I brought the idea of the personas, and then we wrapped the whole thing around it. Our, our, our really core idea was, instead of thinking it as a series of requirements, think about it through that process of, of user experience, starting with people and ending up with uh, some of the some of the details along the way. So that was that was how it came about. Well, I, I think uh, it, it was a really good uh, approach because as I, I uh, work with people and help uh, people get in the accessibility area, one of the first things that happens is often people get overwhelmed by all the guidelines it, it, and just all the work that's out there, you know, and, you know, I try to tell people, you know, you know, pick a piece that you're comfortable with and relate to that and kind of move from that. And the stories that you use, those personas, I think, you know, really help people to uh, to dig into a part that resonates with them. I think the other thing we thought about a lot was what role people were in and how their responsibility for parts of UX would vary. You know, we all say, well, what am I supposed to do about climate change? Well, but we know we could drive less and we know we could recycle more and you can build on those habits. So if you're a content writer, for instance, you can start thinking about clear language, you can make sure things are tagged correctly. If you're, you know, if you're, you're putting images there, you can do alt text and that's all just part of the content, just like any other content. It's just a few more things you have to put around it. When I um, edited the UXPA magazine for, for a number of years, we, um, set up the, our template for, for, for work from editing the articles so that you could see the, the, any illustration in context and you could see both the caption and the alt text. So you could think about how that illustration fitted into the content, just like you would if you were doing a publication. And you could think about what was going to be visible for everybody to see and what was the alt text you needed to help someone visualize it who couldn't actually see it. And we thought a lot about not just people who are blind, but people who are on what was then thin web connections and maybe weren't pulling up a big complicated graphic and it would let them know if they wanted to spend their download, you know, minutes to, to grab that image or not. So like so many things, we started thinking about how things that make it make make the web accessible for a, a narrow group of people with very specific needs also make it more useful and usable for people with broader everyday needs and, and bringing those things together was, is really sort of part of our, our, our goal, which is why we called it a web for everyone. Well, uh, it, it's, a, it's certainly a great book, and I'll include uh, links to that uh, in, in the notes associated with this. But uh, as somebody who is uh, interested in bringing uh, new people into this uh, accessibility practice, getting more people involved, uh, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I find useful is just letting people know that there's a lot of different paths and, and that most accessibility professionals uh, you know, 
he had no idea that they might end up in that space at some point. And that's kind of the theme of, of this series. So maybe we could go back, you kind of pick whichever starting point that, that you'd want, but maybe uh, touch on some of the, the different highlights uh, that, that moved you through your career and, and found you to where you are today. Yeah, my starting point was really clear for me. It was um, after the 2000 election, I was on a panel at a, at a conference at NIST talking about usability testing and how we should bring that into elections. And the panel was uh, someone who did voter outreach and um, someone who was talking about um, accessible, accessible elections and me and one other person. And the, uh, the, the first person up was, was Jim Dixon, who's a, a lobbyist and a really fearsome advocate, amazing advocate, uh, very strong speaker. And he went first. And in the Q&A, he and a security advocate in the audience started arguing. And I mean, they were literally yelling at each other. I mean, this wasn't polite argument. This was yelling and loud. And we all thought maybe we should just tip the table up and hide behind it, right, before anybody started throwing things. And I had been a, a, a user researcher, right, and a usability tester person, and a little bit of design. And I figured accessibility was good and it would get done and somebody should do it. And I hadn't really thought a lot about it. And that was the beginning of my thinking about how, you know, if, if someone doesn't stand up and do that work, it doesn't happen. It's not magic. It doesn't just happen. Uh, and a little while later, I was on a, invited to a discussion group about things. And I was complaining to the person who invited me that, you know, some of these people on this list really, really need to understand about accessible voting more. And he looked at me and he said, why do you think I invited you here? Right? And it was like, yeah, if you don't, if you don't step up and do it, and no, no one, no one goes from zero to sixty in one in one in one step. But if you don't start thinking about how to how to bring that bring accessibility into your work, maybe that means opening up your recruiting if you're if you do usability testing, right? Maybe it means really focusing on alt text or getting the forms right so that they so that they work. I used to think we don't need usability UXPA day or IA day or accessibility day. Maybe we should just have fix the damn forms day. You know, and if we just fixed all the forms, I can't tell you how many sites I've looked at where the content is actually pretty good because it's in a it's in a template, you know, it's in a, a system like WordPress or something, and that constrains it. But every page is failing on a bad form because they've got a search box up in the corner of the screen that that doesn't have that that isn't formatted correctly. And you just think, wow, one one tweak to one template in that website would eliminate what turn out to look like thousands of usability of accessibility errors, right? So thinking about where are the places where we create big bumps that don't need to be there and maybe not worrying so much about the obscure things. Well, I'll give you an example of this. I was working with a company, they were e-commerce e site and they, uh, as we were, I was just coaching them through their first accessibility reviews and they said, we're really worried about video. And I'm like, video? I've, I mean, I've been through that site. And I hadn't seen any video. And I said, okay, show me where the video is. And they go click into the into something, click into the help, click into the, and like four clicks down into the support system, there was a video about how to do something. And I said, okay, before we even discuss this anymore, I want you to go look at your search logs and your, and your site logs and tell me how many people have ever found this video to work on it. Because maybe the answer is you don't need that video. And if you do need that video, then then we'll, let's talk about fixing it and what you're going to do about that. But you know, sometimes the answer is to rethink the design, not just to patch it up. 
But you, you mentioned that it, being a user, uh, uh, user researcher and usability at, you know, be, as you, at the time that you got into that, but I knew you even before that. And, and like, you've had substantive pivots where, uh, I think we originally knew each other from, uh, you know, area related to technical documentation in, in the software world. And then, um, you were kind of, uh, kind of ahead of everybody else thinking about, well, let's think about better design for the systems and, and got involved in usability and, and, uh, starting the association. And, and so, uh, you always kind of been, you know, moving in that area, thinking about, uh, yeah, uh, evidence-driven design as a way to uh, improve things. Well, it sort of comes from being, having worked in a small consulting company, right? Because it was, uh, Cognetics basically made its living by working with advanced technology people in a company. Those people were thinking about where that company was going next. So that just, you know, that meant that we were always working on stuff that nobody understood and we didn't understand, trying to figure out what you could do with it. Like, what good is this thing? And how can we make this something useful? And it just, by accident, a lot of the projects that they worked on had very were large information sets well well before we, we knew how to call it information architecture we were thinking about how to organize that and the other thing that they had was an early pre-web hypertext program designed at the university of maryland and which they commercialized uh, and so a lot of our work was about building big what we would think of today as a big information website but then it was a big CD-ROM, right, <laughs> or a big whatever it was, whatever whatever media it was on. And I and I actually started there. The first thing I did there was write documentation. They had a they had a, a project that was finished, in use. They couldn't collect the last payment because they hadn't delivered the documentation. I went down for an interview, and they said, and by the way, the developer is leaving on a cross-country hiking trip in a month, so you have that much time to get it done. Do you think you can do it? And I went, well, sure, why not? Had no idea what I was doing. Dived in, discovered I loved it. Well, it took me a little longer to uh, find my way uh, into the user-centered design area, but I mean, uh, you know, today we have uh, you know user experience and, and usability are just solid disciplines that people uh, you know go to to school specifically for. Uh, that wasn't the case when you started getting involved in that. So I think that's an interesting thing too. Maybe you could talk a little bit kind of about that nexus, which I think is very interesting. Well, I'll tell you a funny a story from a UXPA conference. Uh, it was a, it was sort of a, a panel designed to be controversial about, you know, how you teach people on usability in UX. And someone said, well, you can't learn usability from a book. And Ginny Reddish put her hand up and said, I did, right? Because someone had to learn it from a book event, you know, at the beginning. You know, I think it, it, it's not an accident that, that, that we've gone there. I think in some ways it's because we won, right? We all said, boy, this technology stuff is really cool. We want everybody to be able to use it. And once you want everybody to be able to use it, you have to understand people who aren't just like you, who use it, who might use technology in different ways, who might have different needs for it. And that means that you have to have some way to connect the team building the products with the people out there. And I, I don't really care what you call it. I mean, we call it usability user experience, but whatever you call it, you have to have a way to do that. Um, Sometimes, you know, and I think some of the early products, the people building it came out of the field. They, they went, there's a better way to do this thing I do. And so they were essentially building for their past selves. 
and that got us a long way. That taught us a lot of things about how to how to design interfaces. But um, the minute we start to say it's for everyone, we have to really think about what everyone means. And it, and that's something that uh, that that I, that I find is a challenge in the accessibility area. Even uh, you know, uh, working within the user experience field, um, it it's still really hard to be able to get organizations to invest in the resources to do the same fundamental uh, research and usability testing related to accessibility issues as they do more broadly. Um, you probably found that at, at, as well, but I, I definitely, you know, I, I see that as kind of an odd, but still major blocker. It's just, it's, it's fear of the unknown. I mean, like so many like so many other things we call them the illities uh, quality usability accessibility if you want you have to bake those in from the beginning you can't come in at the end it's very expensive um one of the things we're working on now is a lot of forms for election offices and uh something unusual about elections is that it's one of the several fields that do get sued over accessibility right with along with education um because it's designed to be so broad and so that means that if you have a downloadable, say, voter registration form, that has to be an accessible PDF form, right? It can't just be a paper form. And it can't just be, and you can't even say, well, we'll make it a, an, Adobe, an Adobe form. It has to be an accessible Adobe PDF form. And so that means you have to think about that in advance. You have to think about the fact that you need enough space. You have to set the font size. You've got to get the order right. And so all of a sudden you're thinking about that form about, you're thinking about how people will move through that form, um, what will happen if they're just using a keyboard and tapping and that order is predetermined and they can't just glance around the page easily. And if you start with that as the, as the way of thinking about it, then it becomes much easier. And then you go, you know, we sketch out the form. I'm not a big InDesign user, so I, I use some pretty sloppy sketch tools to get to work with the departments to get the basic design right. And then it goes to the designers who make it an InDesign. And if they build that form so that the hooks are all there in InDesign, then what you get is an accessible form that's really easy, right? It just the whole thing just it goes through the technical process quickly and easily. And if you don't do that, then it's probably as much work to make it as accessible as it was to lay out the form in the first place. So why wouldn't you learn how to do those things right and cut your cut your costs, right? Cut your resources needed. Um, Maybe there's a, an expert who does the final check and does final tweaks or helps solve interesting problems. But if our templates are good and our processes are good, then so much comes out accessible just from the beginning. Well, you, you mentioned the uh, the issue of, of, of legal action and, and that you're right, that tends to be a driver in a lot of cases. Uh, uh, but, Fortunately, a lot of organizations aren't in a place where where the stick is 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 going to be the thing that moves it. So we're always looking for the carrot, and uh, it 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 really is a challenge to uh, you know to make accessibility visible. Uh, there, there's certainly an ROI there. People uh, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, various physical challenges are among the most uh, uh, ardent supporters of digital tools because it, it can dramatically simplify life. But uh, if something isn't available through a screen reader uh, for a person who's blind, it's a binary. It's it's yeah. it works or it doesn't. You get to 
get that government information or other information or you don't. I was doing a project for IEEE, a big engineering organization, and they were about to launch a new a new framework for their website. And they and they they were concerned about accessibility. They had that on their radar already. And so we started doing some recruiting by just, you know, we did some recruiting by mailing directly to members, but also blasted out to a number of lists. And I was busy scheduling things. And I get an email from somebody that says, hey, will this thing work with my screen reader? I mean, not that not will the site work, but we were doing remote testing. Will the remote tool work with our reader? So we had a double layer of accessibility problem. And we went back and forth a couple of times. And finally, I said, we're obviously both sitting at our desk. Why don't we just try it out? We tried it out and it worked pretty well. And we spent a couple of minutes talking about things. So in, when I would, you know, if we were nor would normally say, oh, go click on a link here, we might just push the, the, the URL into chat. So we get scheduled into the test. And uh, we did this in a room with the team together in a room. The participant was on screen. And he said, well, do you want me to slow my screen reader down? And I said, no, I want them to hear exactly what your experience is like. Well, I, I, I change it so it's a really growly. I don't like high pitch sound. So I change it to a low pitch sound. And I go really fast and I I, change, I said, whatever you do to the screen, it's fine. We know the screens, right? And so we set up a second screen and we had somebody bringing up the screens that he was going to. So it was a full visual look of it. And he went wailing through that site. He was the fastest participant finishing the tasks that we had in that test. And I suddenly realized that one of the things we'd done was include on some pages we had an on this page link and they were all headers. So if he hit eight, uh, there was a header for it. So he hit H three times. He was at the on this page link and he could just jump down that list of links and jump into the page. And he figured out that really fast because he's an engineer, right? So he's good with technology, happens to be blind, right? Happens to be using assistive technology as part of his engineering suite of tools and was really good with those tools. And so we spent some time at the end of it talking to him about how he navigated and learned a couple of tricks that got, baked, that got baked into the design about making them easier for everybody to see that there was a way to get through that page quickly because IEEE, in addition to you know, the normal range of people with disabilities, is also an international organization. So a lot of people are reading that site in a second language. Yeah, there, there, there's certainly uh, so many uh, of the affordances that we come up with. If we can uh, kind of get get involved early on, we can have a lot of in innovation that works across that whole spectrum of abilities. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, I wanted to uh, make sure that we reserve some time to talk about your uh, current work because I, I think it's it's so valuable and, and also fascinating as somebody who uh, kind of keeps up on uh, you know elements of the democratic process and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, what you're working on today. Sure um, so Center for Civic Design as I said democracy is a design problem. The genesis of that was in the in the 2000 election like so many of us you know I've been voting I assumed voting kind of worked um, and 2000 was a real eye-opener for all of us because it was demonstrably a design problem. Um, that happened on that in that election. Um, uh, and the really sad thing about that is that the, the person who designed that butterfly ballot that caused all the problems was trying to do something good. She was trying to make the text bigger because in Palm Beach County, she knew she had a lot of older adults. And by making the text bigger with a, with a large race with a lot of people, she pushed it to two, column, to two sides of the page. And, and you couldn't actually, if you just look at the ballot itself, you can't see what the problem is because it's just a piece of paper, it looked fine. 
it's only when you put it in that little V-shaped thing with the punch holes in the middle that you could see how hard it was to get it lined up perfectly. So I thought, boy, this is a design problem, but it's also a usability problem, and it's also an accessibility problem, um, and altogether. Um, we're still kind of working on many, many of the same basic problems, but almost the, the common thread between them is that they're about how to connect voters to the procedures and machinery and forms of democracy. So that's so we you know that means plain language, that means accessibility, that means good design, um, designing for something to be easy to read, even if the law is complicated or maybe a law we don't agree with. I still want people to be able to know how to meet the requirements of that law and be able to vote. And we've now gotten a little more involved in, in policy because we're often implementing new policy. We get we get called when a form needs to be changed, right? And you often it needs to be changed because the law changed and there's a new requirement. Usually more text to cram on that one core piece of paper, right? So it, you start to need clever design to get around that. And um, so we've ended up working with a lot of election offices. Um, we uh, take them seriously as, you know, as a very constrained, difficult space to work in. Um, and we'll meet them where they are. If this is how much they can do this year, that's how much we'll do with them. And then we'll sort of point forward to the next year and maybe things they could do then. And we're starting to see election departments that have brought in people who know how to do a decent website and have begun to think about the brand of the election. So instead of using that state seal, which is nice and official, what if there was a state voting logo, right? That, that told you you're in North Carolina or Georgia or New York or whatever state you're in. And so you see, you're starting to see that. We're starting to see um, some innovations in what they're doing on the web because more and more, while we don't wanna vote online, there's all sorts of other things we can do online, right? From registering to vote, to, to looking up the results, to seeing if your absentee ballot or your vote by mail ballot actually has been received and counted and putting that structure around it really came out of the voter registration databases because it's having a good solid election management tool that's that will connect to the web and will connect to forms means that we can take some of the paper out of that and now the time and effort from the election offices instead of spending it retyping things they're spending it approving things and looking at things and Sometimes that means they've got more time to, to say, hmm, the voter registration form came in, and there's something missing, and we need to get this information from the voter. Instead of just throwing that out and saying, start over, they can send them a message and say, here's the problem. And then we began working on those, on those messages, because they often said, attention, there is a problem with your voter registration form, at which point everybody's like, oh my god, it's like jury duty, right? Um, how can we make that an, an invitation? How can we make every communication between elections and voters be an invitation to finish the step you're on or take the next step? So if you get registered because you go to the DMV and you get registered through Motor Voter, what if instead of just getting a thing that says, hey, you're a voter, it said, hey, great to have you as a voter. By the way, our next statewide election is November 2nd. Um, hope to see you there. And that there was a little bit more of a personal connection there, guiding someone through those steps because Maybe your parents have been voting for generations, but maybe they haven't. Uh, and maybe you're in a new state that does things differently. If you move from the East Coast to California or Washington or Oregon, there's a lot more vote by mail and things are different, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they're different from Washington to Colorado because Colorado has these big vote, has these voter service centers. And that's, and that's a different model. And so even if you're someone who's been voting for a long time, you need to know what's different here. Well, in, 
Um, then just to bring it kind of back around to accessibility. So from your work with uh, different federal and state municipal organizations, uh, do, do you find that uh, there's a general sense of understanding about the the need for accessibility in in voting processes and technology, or is is that also a constant educational activity? No, there's there's a lot of awareness of the need. Um, for one thing, accessibility was baked into the Help America Vote Act. Uh, so after after that act was passed. I mean, it was. It said there has to be at least one accessible voting machine at every polling location, every voting location. But that was before we started seeing states go to all vote by mail, right? So things things changed. Uh, twenty twenty was kind of amazing because uh, because there was so much vote by mail. A lot of states adopted what we call remote accessible vote by mail systems. These are our computer systems. These are our systems that where you can go online, download your ballot mark it on your own computer with your own assistive technology, print it out and mail it back, right? So they're still returning a printed ballot just like everybody else, but instead of having to go get someone to read it to them or get someone to help them mark it, they can use whatever their personal setup is to, um, to, to, to navigate through that ballot. Um, the, that was, the first one of those was in Oregon. Uh, it was, it's called the alternative ballot. It's still in use and it's also in use in Hawaii and a couple of other states. Uh, it just is straight up HTML. It's simple as anything. And he did something really lovely that makes it read well when you when you ask the computer to read it out loud, which is instead of saying, you know, Senator Joe Walensky, it says, for Senator, you voted for Joe Walensky, period. Right. And so that knows to read it as a sentence. And you get that you get and you get that that sentence break between that and then they go on to and for US representative, you voted for Whitney Quisenberry, right? And it turns out to sound like you're hearing someone echo back to you what you did instead of just reading a series of disconnected texts. So that was lovely. And last year, Los Angeles County launched their much anticipated voting systems for all people. This was a long, very strong user-centered design process. Uh, they have probably done more usability testing with voters and engagement with voters of various sorts than probably the rest of the country combined um, because it's such a big county and they were so careful about their work. But they had this insight, which is that um, California voters get sent a voter guide. It's a big voter guide. And we tell them, write down who you want to vote for and then come into the polling place and transcribe that to your ballot. And he thought, well, first of all, we don't want to have to send paper. They support 13 languages and they need to be fully accessible. So they made what they called the interactive sample ballot. So you can go online, you can you pull up your you know the, the contents for your ballot, you figure out who you want, and you can do a bunch of things. You can print that out as a list to take it to the polling place if you want to. It also serves as the remote accessible. It serves for their overseas voters who have a system very much like that, where they can uh, they they have an extra ability to be able to fax it back if they don't if they want to. And then the last thing that they did was say, well, especially in California where they a lot of stuff goes to direct election with ballot questions. You can print out what they call a poll pass, right? Prints a QR code. You take it into the polling place or into the vote center. You scan that QR code. It loads all your choices into the ballot. It lets you review them. You can add to them, change them, whatever. And then it casts your ballot like everybody else. So with one interface to interact with the ballot, they've sort of supplied all of these, these sort of odd cases of now, maybe someone who doesn't read very well still has a way to go to the polling place because they know that they've 
they've they who they're, what their selections they made they've been able to confirm on the computer they can go into the polling place of the accessible machine they don't have to go through and read the whole ballot to type it in all they have to do is read the list of who they've voted for and make sure that's correct and there's headsets on the machine so they can do that so they they spent a lot of time thinking about the difference between using the audio if you can't see the screen and using the audio if you can see the screen and making sure that it worked for both because it's good for literacy it might be good for people who are in a wheelchair and can't get close enough to the screen to see it um, and it might be used for people who have a, a visual disability and can't see the screen and really need the audio to be able to read it at all so it's a lovely kind of universal not each and every you know with, with multiple channels baked into one process of learning about who you're going to vote for before you go to the polls. Well, I think everything you've talked about definitely uh, creates a more uh, positive outlook at uh, the idea that, you know, we hopefully keep always moving forward to uh, improve this, uh, this area. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a slow, it's a slow world, right, because it, it works on a four year cycle. And you know, while, and so what one of my realizations was that there's lots of little elections and little elections are like your pilots, right? They're where you try things out, special election, a, you know, a little regional election or a water, water district election. That's the place to try out new things and trying to bake some experimentation into, into the process so that the experimentation isn't happening in the big off year and presidential year elections. It's happening in in smaller, more controlled things, just like just like you would do small releases of, a, of any other software. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in a, a relatively short amount of time. Uh, so I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, share your ideas, your thoughts, uh, talk to us a little bit about your journey uh, into accessibility, and hopefully uh, we'll meet up uh, at a physical event again sometimes in the future. That would be awesome, Joe. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design, we can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we 
always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X dot com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.